1: PlushCare.com weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Timothy Revel in New York.
0: And I'm Christy Taylor, also in New York. This week, a dramatic clash of ice giants in a solar system far away from here. Accusations that the U.S.'s national security agency is attempting to put backdoors into future methods for securing our data and why the Earth's solid core is still surprisingly squishy. Plus, do you like free books? I know I do. Well, we've got another puzzling math riddle for you to solve.
1: But first, researchers have published the first draft of the most detailed map to date of our brains, the so-called Human Brain Cell Atlas, the results of efforts that began almost a decade ago. The human brain is often described as the most complex object in the known universe because of the sheer number of cells and connections it contains. So even mapping where everything goes is an extremely complex task. This new brain cell map should help give researchers more information about the structure and function of different parts of the brain to help them learn more about both brain health and disease, how it develops throughout our lifetimes, as well as how it evolved. Medical reporter Claire Wilson is here to talk to us all about it. Hi, Claire.
3: Hi. I can't wait to tell you all about this human brain atlas. As you said, it's being billed as the most detailed map yet of the human brain, looking at the exact cellular structure of the different tissues, how they form, the locations of different types of neurons and their supporting cells, which genes are active in more than 100 different regions, uh, like the visual cortex, the hypothalamus and so on. Now, I've got to admit here, it actually doesn't look like a map. And that's more of a metaphor. <laughs> it's more like a huge database and, in fact, multiple databases describing the brain at different ages, in childhood, adulthood, and even some that are being made for embryos and fetuses. And that's really important because if we want to understand the brain, we need to understand how it originates and how it grows while we're in the womb. And a lot of neurological and mental health conditions are thought to have their origins from things that happened before birth. Also in this atlas, there are versions, you know, the equivalent version for gorillas, chimpanzees and monkeys. And that's important for understanding how the human brain evolved. They've even produced maps of different people at the same age in adulthood to try to understand why differences in brain structure leads to differences between people. However, it is, it is correct that sometimes the work as a whole is being referred to as a brain cell atlas.
1: Mm, yeah, I've also heard some people describe it as a bit of a census, you know, just a state of play of everything about the brain.
3: Yes, that, that's another good term or a catalogue in a way. But there is some spatial location in there as well.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess some of this we knew before. Is it the just the level of detail that sets it apart?
3: Exactly. And it is a huge collection of um, 24 different papers that have all come out together. So you might have previously heard of brain scanning techniques to try and map the brain. But this new way, it's a much more precise way of visualising the brain. And it's based on identifying multiple different cell types. They found more than 3,000 in this current batch of papers. They took samples from up to 105 different brain regions, depending on the species or the age of the donor individual. Yeah,
0: I really like the sound of that, especially, you know, as we're learning more about how individual cells within the brain function, it really seems like visualizing who's where, doing what would have a lot to tell us about our whole brain.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, previously, we did know that there are different kinds of brain cells, of course, doing different jobs, partly because of the fact that they can they can simply look very different. There is a beautiful picture of all these Different shapes that brain cells can take in this special issue of science, the journal that's just published the papers. I mean, you really need to see the pictures, and we can give a link to these in the show notes. But some neurons are kind of long and thin, like strands of spaghetti. Some of them will look more like an octopus with a tangle of arms, some look like a banyan tree, some more like a map of the London underground. And they all behave differently too, of course, which is why we're so interested in these differences. You know, some of them send signals that trigger the next neuron down the line to fire. And some of them send signals that do the opposite. They stop the next neuron from firing. And there are lots of other differences too. But these kind of differences were very difficult to study until 20 years ago, we had a breakthrough in being able to distinguish between different cell types. Well, you can't just say breakthrough and not tell us
0: more about
3: <laughs> what, what was going on. It's called single cell sequencing, and that allows you to analyze the genetic material within a single cell to see which genes are turned on. In other words, which proteins it's manufacturing. And that can tell you how the cell functions, what job it does. And this pattern of gene activity within a cell defines and identifies which type of neuron it is. And so we've now begun to do that with the neurons taken from many different areas within the brain. And that gives you the brain atlas.
1: Have they, in the process of making it, did they make any new discoveries yet? Or is this more laying the foundation for further developments in the future?
3: Well, good question. It is more of the latter. You know, they're they're making this tremendous resource and there are a few hints, but I think the crux of this story is that they've now produced this first draft of the atlas. It's what other researchers are going to do with this information that's going to be the next chapter in this story.
0: And now, collisions on a scale that only outer space can provide. New Scientist News Editor Jacob Aaron is here to talk about the evidence for a bang-up of two massive ice giants 1,800 light-years away. It's both the first time we've been able to pinpoint the moment two planets collided... And it may also pour some cold water on some of our models of how star systems evolve. Jacob, how do you spot a phenomenon like this, first of all?
4: Well, it all started in 2021 when astronomers noticed that a star around 1,800 light years away had suddenly dimmed, losing as much as 95% of its brightness. Even stranger, when Matthew Kenworth at Leiden University in the Netherlands and his colleagues investigated, they found that it had doubled in brightness three years before the dimming. So after examining a range of scenarios, the researchers think we've seen the light from two icy Neptune-sized planets colliding. They smashed together, releasing a huge amount of energy, and have now obscured the star with dust and debris.
3: Wow,
0: that sounds really incredible, and I I can only imagine it would have been really intense to see up close. What what would that have been like?
4: Yeah, so Kenworthy told our reporter Jonathan O'Callaghan that the planets would have been pulverized and reduced to molten muck leaving behind a giant ball of vaporised rock around seven times as wide as the sun. That ball would have been stretched out, forming a donut at temperatures of 700 degrees Celsius. And that donut is currently orbiting the star and obscuring it, which explains the dimming that we saw in 2021.
1: Well, so given that we uh, live in a solar system with our own ice giants, do we know what actually caused those collisions in the first place? You know, <laughs> asking for a somewhat worried yeah, friend. Yeah, so
4: the good yeah, news yeah. is that ice giants don't suddenly just decide to collide with each other one day. It's likely that something else, perhaps a passing star or another planet in the system, disturbed the orbit of the two gas giants, causing them to collide. And we know that this can happen in our solar system. The moon is thought to have been created when a Mars-sized object called Thea smashed into Earth early in the formation of the star system, you have lots of stuff whizzing around and it can take a while to settle down. What's unusual about this situation is that while this period ended about 100 million years after the birth of our sun, this star is around 300 million years old. And so it really should have long ago grown out of throwing its toys around.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what, what can we glean from that fact? Seems a bit strange.
4: Well, it either means something about our understanding of star system evolution is slightly wrong or that the planetary collision idea is wrong. Other researchers have proposed that the dimming of this star actually could just be down to comets breaking up in the system.
0: How can we be sure that it was a planetary pile up, as the researchers first surmised? Well,
4: if the planetary collision idea is correct, we should start to see more light coming from the star over the next few years. And that's something that the mm-hmm. James Webb Space Telescope might be able to see. And, you know, if we wait a few thousand years, the remains might actually condense into a new planet and a bunch of moons.
0: Every week, we bring you some of the most fascinating news in science, medicine and technology. But on the Dead Planet Society podcast, we also give Leia Crane and Chelsea White the cosmic power to rearrange the universe, sometimes for the better, but often for the worse. And in this week's episode, Leia destroys her arch nemesis, the moon. That's already right there in your feed for your ears to delight in.
1: And coming up next Tuesday, we'll be publishing a conversation I had with the world-renowned biologist Robert Sapolsky for Culture Lab, which I really enjoyed doing. He explained to me why he believes that free will doesn't exist, and how that realisation should mean we completely reshape society as we know it.
3: If you suddenly are convinced there's no free will, and that's a total bummer for you, by definition you were one of the lucky ones. For most people on Earth, who are dealing with far less privilege, the notion that we are not the captains of our fate is like wildly liberating and humane.
1: It was a really fascinating conversation, so look out for that one in your feed soon.
0: And if you're still hungry to learn, we have a great offer for free digital access to New Scientist. That's four weeks of unlimited access to everything in the New Scientist app and on our website. That's for zero dollars or pounds. We'll have the link in the show notes.
1: Now, last week, as you might remember, we talked to puzzle maestro Rob Easterway about the new new scientist book Head Scratchers, which is out this month. And we gave out a puzzle to try about a clock asking how many times the hour hand and the minute hand might overlap exactly in the time between a second past midnight and a second before midday.
0: And we asked you to send us your guesses. And thanks so much to all of you who did. You'll be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, even if you didn't get it right. And bonus thanks to Radon in Canada, who even sent us his guess by voice.
5: I assume that this excludes midnight and midday, but that was the tricky part of the question. If they're both are excluded, then 11 times. However, because it said 1201 to 12 and one second to 12 and one second, then it's 12 times.
0: Unfortunately, we were all fooled. Even Tim, who guessed 12. <laughs> Here's Rob's answer
6: a lot of people might have said it's actually it's going to be 11 isn't it because it's not it's going to be between the two and there's 11 hours between and the answer is actually 10 10 times it's a bit after one o'clock or five past one a little bit more after two a little bit more after three so you imagine you're going one two three four five six seven eight nine ten but the 11th a bit after 11 is actually 11 it's actually the twelve one. one so the the 11 doesn't count. So is 10. You might need to actually get your own clock and wind the minute hand to prove because it says, where the heck's that missing hour gone? It's lovely because it's so everyday and it's so counterintuitive.
1: And we've got another puzzle for you today, along with another chance to win a free copy of Head Scratchers. All you've got to do is send us your guesses as to the answers. So get your pencils out. Are you ready? Here's Rob's clue for this week.
6: Right. Here's a puzzle about dartboards, the last bastion of mental arithmetic in the world where no one gets out a calculator. Okay, so you know how regular dartboards are. They've got the numbers one to twenty, but you can score a bullseye fifty, and just around the bull, there's twenty-five. You can get trebles and you can get doubles. So the highest score you can get on a regular dartboard is with three darts is one hundred eighty. but it's not possible to get every score below that. For example, you can't get 179 with three darts. But what's the lowest score that you can't get with three darts?
0: All right, then, you heard the question. What is the lowest score that you cannot get with three darts on a dartboard? Send us your answer by email to podcasts at newscientist.com for a chance of winning a copy of Rob Eastaway's book, Head Scratchers. And if you want to do a little extra credit, we'd love to receive a little audio clip of you telling us your guess, which you can do using the Voice Memo app or Voice Recorder app on your phone. Again, the email address is podcasts at newscientist.com. We'll reveal the answer next week, and we'll still have one more puzzle for you to try your hand at.
1: Now, a prominent mathematician has warned that one of the U.S.'s top intelligence agencies, the National Security Agency, is trying to weaken the next generation of encryption, the algorithms that keep data secure on the internet. And they're allegedly trying to do that by undermining the encryption standards for everyone. And Matt Sparks is here to talk us through this one. Hi, Matt. Hello there. So what type of encryption are we talking about here? And then also, what specifically are these allegations?
5: Basically, this all hinges on quantum computers. So the, the encryption algorithms we all use today, they all rely on processes that are really easy to do in one direction and extremely hard to do in the other. But the, the problem is that what a classical computer finds very hard, a quantum computer is likely to find really easy. So when or if we develop a, a reliable, powerful quantum computer, modern encryption basically gets broken overnight, which would be extremely chaotic. You know, governments around the world, have been expecting this for years, they're preparing for it. And the uh, the US National Institute of Standards and Technology or NIST has been running a competition to pick a range of new encryption algorithms that rely on mathematics that even quantum computers find sufficiently difficult. What's new this week is that a cryptography expert has claimed that the US National Security Agency or NSA, the uh, US spy agency in charge of code breaking, could be intervening to water down these post-quantum standards.
1: Yeah, I guess um, spies are going to spy, aren't they? But <laughs> it, weakening encryption, it's one of those ones that's a bit of a double-edged sword, because if you weaken encryption, you weaken encryption for everyone, including the people the NSA are trying to protect. So would this not be shooting themselves in the foot just a little bit?
5: Yeah, uh, in a way. I mean, the NSA has its own standards to protect its own data, which, you know, we don't know about. Mm. But the NSA also basically wants to bring in strong post-quantum cryptography to protect US data and communications from prying eyes of adversaries. But it's also got an interest in making sure that this encryption isn't so strong that it can't crack it and peek at any data it wants in the future. So, the yeah, the US government's in a weird position where it funds the standards body NIST to create Or at least approve strong encryption algorithms. But it also funds the NSA who want encryption to be strong in some situations and weak in others. So you've got this confusing collection of people with differing motivations. And then to make it even worse, some of those people have to do their jobs in complete secrecy, which makes getting to the bottom of it all the more difficult.
0: What exactly is this mathematician claiming about the NSA? And and what's his evidence?
5: So Daniel Bernstein at the University of Illinois, Chicago, he's a a well-respected cryptographer, he's contributed a lot to the field, and he's been pushing NIST to be more transparent about their selection process for all of these post-quantum algorithms, which I should say, they're all designed and submitted by businesses and academics, they're not created by NIST. But he says NIST has made errors, either accidental or deliberate, in the calculations when assessing the security of one of these new standards called Kyber, and that might have made it look stronger or more robust than it really is. And he also says that the NSA has had more involvement in the whole process than NIST suggested. So he's been pushing freedom of information requests, and he's been taking NIST to court to get more details of these NSA meetings with NIST and to get feedback on the algorithms. It's worth noting that NIST denies all of this, though.
0: So with NIST denying those allegations, why exactly does Bernstein suspect that the NSA is even behind anything that would weaken encryption?
5: I mean, to be honest, there are really good reasons to assume that the NSA regularly does sneaky stuff. They really wouldn't be doing their job if they didn't. And cryptography can be a pretty murky world. If you go back to in 2013, there was a New York Times expose that revealed the agency had a quarter of a billion dollar budget for exactly that sort of thing. And then when the Snowden leaks came, we had documents that hinted at the NSA deliberately placing a backdoor in another older cryptography algorithm. There's also been other algorithms in the past that have been shown to have suspiciously neat weaknesses with mysterious origins. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise that some shadowy code-breaking agency is playing those sorts of games. But what we do know is that the post-quantum algorithms, they're open for public analysis and nobody so far has spotted any specific flaw in how they work or at least come out publicly and and said they have.
1: It's all very murky, isn't it? How, How are we going to get to the bottom of this? And I guess, should we be worried about our own data
5: as quantum computing advances? My gut feeling from having spoken to a lot of cryptographers and NIST but not the NSA, which seems to have a press office solely to, to say no comment, is that the NSA <laughs> is very much in the game of influencing decisions on encryption, but the evidence for that here isn't as strong as in other instances. So either they're you know, not trying to weaken post-quantum cryptography, or they're doing a better job of doing it surreptitiously. In any case, there's, there's probably no quantum computers out there yet capable of cracking current encryption, And even when there is, they're unlikely to be used on the likes of you and I. They're likely to be going after, you know, really sensitive stuff. Data privacy is definitely an issue. You know, it's not something to be dismissed. But to be honest, I think we all have to assume that security agencies could, if they needed to, see all of our data, you know, today with classic computers or tomorrow with quantum computers. But the truth is we're probably just too boring for them to bother with.
1: The safest form of encryption being
5: too boring to bother with.
1: I
0: love it. All right, next up, we've got a surprisingly soft story about what happens in the very middle of the Earth, specifically the inner core. That's the ball of iron that's a bit smaller than the moon, but somehow still as hot as the sun. And we've known that despite being made of solid metal, this part of the planet is actually kind of squishy. But now we have one explanation for why this might be the case, and it involves a funny little do dough do of iron atoms. Carmela padovich Callahan is here. Carmela, how do we even know the Earth's inner core is so unexpectedly soft?
2: Right. We definitely can't access the core directly or the inner core directly. In fact, one researcher described this to me a little bit like being a doctor who tries to look at internal organs, <laughs> but here we can't really like use an ultrasound. You actually rely on seismic data instead. Researchers also run computer simulations, and they try to do these experiments where you try to replicate the extreme conditions in the inner core, so very high temperatures, very high pressures. And combining all of this is how we know that the inner core is probably mostly made of metal, and that it's actually really squishy, so sort of more like clay or rubber than cast iron or some other hard metal you might have at home.
0: Yeah, and so now a team of researchers thinks they know why, down to the atomic level even. So what did they do to investigate this?
2: Right. I mean, in the past, researchers have conjectured that there are some arrangements of iron atoms close to the melting temperature, or maybe iron atoms laced with some other elements that could be part of the reason why. So this idea has been kicking around for a bit, but there hasn't really been a ton of consensus. And now this new study tried to get at this by combining a sort of an extreme experiment and some computer simulations aided by AI. So the researchers first made these uh, small, pure iron disks, and they shot projectiles at them to emulate the conditions in the inner core, just for a few hundred nanoseconds, but they could sort of measure the properties of iron under impact. And then they used that data to do a simulation on a computer that was much bigger than what folks could do before because they used AI. And putting all that together, they tried to answer this question of sort of what happens to the atoms in the core to make it so soft. And even though in the simulation and, and in the experiment, the iron atoms start off in a hexagonal crystal grid, and they're very compressed, right? The pressure is through the roof here. <laughs> they don't exactly get jammed into place. Like These atoms can kind of wiggle around and switch spots, kind of like they were playing musical chairs. And the researchers think that this collective motion is what causes this softness.
1: Very, very interesting. So is that a new type of material? Do we know of other sorts of things that are sort of like wandering crystals in this way?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not really a new material. It's more like a material stuck in a regime between two phases, like this wandering or, or wiggling of atoms has been seen before in some other metals when they're just on the edge of melting or sort of pre-melting. Mm. So maybe the more slightly more accurate way to talk about this is to say that the Earth's inner core is still a crystal, but like just on the edge of becoming a liquid.
1: Yeah, so you already spoke about how it's, you know, it's very difficult to look at the inner part of the planet. So how do we go about confirming this? You sort of mentioned there's seismic data, you know, data from earthquakes. How do we really confirm that... The material at the inner core of the Earth is playing musical chairs like the simulation suggests.
2: Yeah, I mean, the seismic data is definitely going to be the thing that helps us here. There's more and more of this data. We're getting better at getting detailed data, uh, sort of using all the tech that we have to get the small earthquakes and the big earthquakes and sort of any vibration in the Earth. We're trying to record it. And there's other things about the inner core that we don't quite understand. So sort of it's anisotropic, which means that sound travels differently to different parts of the core, like different directions. It also spins at a slightly different rate than the rest of the Earth. So if we could explain some of those things by referring to this collective motion of iron atoms, that would really strengthen the case. That's what's happening beneath our feet. So I live on the Earth.
0: I'm interested in what happens on the Earth. It feels important to understand my planet But is there a bigger reason, maybe, that we might find this data important or practical?
2: Yeah, I mean, so for one, this sort of extreme ball of metal that's way, way, way below us has real consequences for us on the surface because it's responsible for the Earth's magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And the Earth's magnetic field protects us from all sorts of radiation from space. So we sort of really need the core to do the thing that it's doing. But there's also implications that go beyond the Earth. Here, the idea is that the more we understand about the insides of our own planet, the better we'll be equipped to understand the cores of planets we might found in outer space. Um, one researcher even mentioned to me that this could be sort of insightful for exoplanets, which are like way, way out there.
0: Awesome. We also need to prevent the plot of the movie, The Core, from ever happening, so.
2: Yeah. Isn't there a Godzilla movie where all the like Godzillas and King Kongs and their friends live inside the hollow core? Uh,
0: Hugo's nodding,
2: our, our producer is nodding, but... Yeah, I don't think we want that either, no, we, so... yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Tim, what if we had a life form of the week and it was Neanderthals?
1: Uh, yes, I could get behind that. What are they up to?
0: Well, in this case, nothing new. They're extinct as of 40,000 years ago. <laughs>
1: yes, of course, yeah.
0: But researchers have found what they think is the earliest evidence of Neanderthals hunting cave lions which, unlike regular lions, are an extinct species about 12% larger than what we might see and run away from today. The team has also found what they think is evidence of Neanderthals harvesting their pelts.
1: Very, very cool. How did the researchers work this out?
0: Well, happy Friday the 13th. The answer is bones. (laughs) First, the team analyzed a lion skeleton that was almost completely intact. Previous research had already identified cut marks on the bones that would correspond to the lion being butchered after death but this time they found a puncture mark inside its ribs that matched those that have been made in other bones with wooden spears. The angle of the puncture suggests the lion was stabbed through the abdomen and multiple vital organs before hitting the bones.
1: Mm, And what about the pelts? Did they get all of that from the same skeleton?
0: No, lots of bones involved, actually. In in this one, they relied on a collection of bones from the feet of three different lions, and these foot bones all have cut marks that both indicate a skinning process— but also kind of indicate that maybe care was taken to keep the claws intact in the fur. So maybe you might have like a cool lion pelt with claws hanging out of it, which again, seems pretty cool. And since these bones date possibly as far back as 55,000 years ago, the team says they may constitute the first evidence of intentional pelt preservation. Oh,
1: it's so hard to comprehend 55,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. All right. Another story about the ingenuity of hominins. Researchers may have figured out a way to make solid roads on our moon.
0: You know, I always thought that's what the fancy moon buggies were for, you know, driving without the help of roads on a bumpy landscape.
1: Well, Christy, where we're going, we will need roads. And that's mostly because of the pesky problem of lunar dust. So dust on the moon, it's made of this sort of crushed rock and without the erosion forces like wind or water that we have on Earth, this dust becomes extremely sharp and it just flies all over the place. And then to top it off, some of it's even electrically charged, meaning that it actively clings to other things. So NASA and other space agencies, they struggle with this issue of dust breaking machinery and then also shredding spacesuits and clogging up mechanical structures. And unfortunately, that also extends to driving. So those Lunar buggies, you've seen, they also kick up dust, which for NASA, that actually did significant damage to the Apollo astronauts' spacesuits.
0: And a road gives you a surface to drive on that doesn't kick up dust. Okay. So are we talking concrete or maybe cobblestones for nostalgia's sake?
1: Oh, that would be nice. A little (laughs) European city on the moon. Well, the thing is, any materials from Earth, they're very costly to transport because of all the rocket fuel you need. So a team in Germany, they've actually had another idea. Why not use lasers to melt the lunar surface into a hard substance?
0: I love that lasers are always the best solution.
1: (laughs) It's always lasers. So the team behind this one, they experimented on a synthetic version of lunar soil with a variety of different laser configurations. And what they found is that if you cross multiple laser beams, what you get is actually cracks. So it's a no-go shouldn't cross the streams, as we all know. But they also figured out that there's a relatively simple way to use a laser beam to create sturdy triangle shapes that could, in theory, be interlocked to create roads or even landing pads. And perhaps even the best part about it is that you may not even need the laser. The team reckoned that a 1.5-meter-wide lens could focus sunlight to have the same sort of effect.
0: All right, one last from me. As promised, the salmon are summed, the calories are quantified, and the votes are in. Fat Bear Week, the U.S. National Park Service's annual celebration of Alaskan brown bears hibernation prep, has a winner. I hope you're sitting down, Tim.
1: I am sitting down, and I cannot wait to find out who is the winner.
0: I mean, Tim, I was literally at my computer Tuesday night waiting for 7 p.m. Alaska time to roll by for this (laughs) announcement, which very much delayed my bedtime routine. But this year's winner is a matriarch, a single mom even, named 128 Grazer. (laughs) She's been a fan favorite, and she completely crushed competitor Chunk in the final matchup of the week-long bracket. So here's one of the Katmai National Park Rangers, Naomi Boak, talking about the mighty, the glorious Grazer.
3: Grazer is probably best known for being a very aggressive, dominant female when she has cubs. I mean, no one wants to get in her way, at least if they want to survive, But Grazer was single this year and, you know, she had no cubs to defend and feed. So she could just concentrate on herself and job one, which is getting fat. And she did a great job of doing that. She's probably the best angler on the river. I mean, she can successfully fish almost anywhere.
1: Incredible. What is the prize for winning Fat Bear Week?
0: The prize, besides international acclaim and fame, is hopefully a really successful coming year in terms of both surviving the winter and potentially raising healthy cubs next spring. Luckily, this is also true of the bears that did not win Fat Bear Week also. These bears have been bulking up tremendously on salmon, gaining hundreds of kilograms of mass, and they can now look forward to spending November through April sleeping peacefully, without eating, drinking, or even urinating or defecating.
1: Well, it's the taking part that counts. (laughs) Congratulations to Grazer and all the other bears out there who have feasted their way to a healthy winter weight. We wish you all the best of luck with the coming hibernation season.
0: And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all the great journalism we talked about today in the show notes. And you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're currently listening on.
1: And as always, if you like the great shows, we're bringing you from the serious to the silly. Please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help. We'll be back next week, but that's bye for now.
0: Bye.
6: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.